Hello and welcome to the Christ Fellowship weekly podcast. At Christ Fellowship, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and His purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on Sunday morning, please visit ChristFellowship.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. I was standing in my mechanic's office, sullen, downcast. I knew the news that was forthcoming. I kept a twinge of hope, but inside, I knew what he had to say. And as his arm raised towards me, it was then that my concerns began to stir because I knew I was probably right. He lifted towards me a faded, dusty, yellow bungee cord. And he said the following to me, Chris, this yellow, dusty, faded bungee cord was holding your front bumper onto your van. You see, at the time, I'd finally made it. I mean, being six months away from my 40th birthday, I was so close to having arrived because for the first time, I had a swagger wagon. But unfortunately, as I reached my hand out to receive the bungee card, I real, bungee cord, I realized I had hashtag swagger wagon probs. My mechanic had put my swagger wagon up on that thing and looked underneath to find what was causing all of the issues. And it seems that not only was there all kinds of issues, but the front bumper, unbeknownst to any of us, was being held on by a bungee cord, which only served to confirm our suspicions, which was this car, this van, was probably in an accident before we purchased it, and we didn't even know it. I mean, we'd already put so much into this van. The steering shaft had gone out. We had brake issues. The CV joints needed to be replaced. The struts needed to be replaced. And the front driver door would not stay propped open when you needed it to. And so I was a shell of myself. Bungee cord in hand, standing in mechanic's office, sullen, downcast. And it was then. It was then that I turned to my left to make eye contact with the woman I had chosen to spend the rest of my life with. And it was from her that I was expecting hope, love, care. It's going to be okay. But instead, instead, the response from her with her eyes and with her mouth was, So what are you going to do about this, Chris? (laughs) It seems that I have been driving a van with all kinds of problems. And now we know, or we're pretty sure, that this van was wrecked before we bought it. I mean, is this the kind of van you want your wife driving around? Is this the kind of van you want your five children sitting in as you carry them down I-35? I don't think so. Chris, what are you going to do about this? And what am I supposed to do about this? We didn't know. It's just me and my bungee cord. 
But somewhere inside, somewhere I found within me the fortitude, the grit, the determination. And so I looked her back in the eyes and I said, babe, you just let me handle this. It was then that I reached into my pocket for the greatest weapon that I needed in that moment. And so with stern determination on my face, I reached in and pulled out my trusty six plus and I got that dealership on the phone and we're making eye contact and I'm communicating. I got this girl and she's communicating. You better got this. And I fired up that dealership and the phone rang. And the phone rang. And the phone rang. And no one answered the phone. But I looked back. It's okay. I got this. And I fired it back up again. And the phone rang. And the phone rang. And then they said hello and transferred me to voicemail. Now, I don't know, guys, what y'all would do. But I knew what I had to do. So I called back a third time. <laughs> and I finally got a human being to speak to me. And I said, you patch me through to that general manager. And he was very nice. He was very nice. Reminded me that I had signed a clean Carfax. And that it seems that it wasn't the dealership, nor was it us. It was just one of these things that happened. And so he invited us to the dealership to look at some comparable vans. And it was a, a great, um, a great time of, of conversation and coming together. And so we were able to turn in our, uh, our Honda Odyssey and they found a comparable, okay, a little nicer, um, van. And it was indeed a beautiful exchange. And it was indeed, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, for the first week, things were great. The new van was boss. Did the kids still say that? No. The new van was really cool. I mean, sleek, like sunroof, built-in Pandora, electronic lift gate, electronic double side doors, 15 cup holders for every Yeti we could possibly pull out of the cupboard, the backup camera, and wait for it, wait for it, the driver door would actually remain propped open when necessary. I mean, this was every Honda commercial I had ever seen growing up. I was that dad. Like the music of my childhood blaring through the stereo, got that little sway going. I look to the back and all five of my wonderful little children are just seated so kindly, hands to themselves, nothing but encouraging words coming out of their mouths. I look over to the passenger side and my lovely wife is sitting there just looking back at me like this has been the most amazing 20 years of my life. And I'm just bumping to the beat and hair in the wind. I mean, fantastic as we cruise down I-35. And then it happened. Beep! Beep! 
Okay, uh, I don't know what that was. Oh, no, they didn't hear it. Uh, are we just going to keep going? So we go a little bit farther down the road. Beep! 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 I look at the dashboard, and I see these letters light up, F-C-W. And I'm thinking, I can't play it off this time. I mean, she heard it there in the back, like, what's that noise? And I, I did what I, I only knew to do. And I turned to Heidi and I said, would you please Google Honda Odyssey FCW? Because I don't know what's happening to this car. Now, of course, my fear was breaking down again. Now we've got more issues. But what she found on Google was that the Honda Odyssey 2014 minivan has a safety feature called a forward collision warning system. Thank you, engineers at Honda. Like, wow, when my van is moving forward and the car senses a potential forward collision, it has a warning system to tell me to slow down. That is great ingenuity, innovation, engineering to help suburban dad keep his foot off the gas. However, once we figured out that that was what the sensor was, that was what the beeping was, when it went off 23 other times, uh, Chris's wife was, was not so happy. Because with the old van, there was no beeping, so no one really knew that Chris wasn't driving as safely as he could have been. However, the new van now beeps every time Chris is moving forward when he should be applying the brake, which is great for our marriage. So every time the sensor goes off, Chris's wife looks at him and either gives a glare or has some type of wonderful corrective words to offer. And this is so amazing. So amazing that Chris's kids have picked up on the same thing. And so now instead of one corrective person in the van, there are six. And all of them have some type of advice to give to the driver who needs to learn to push the brake more frequently. Thank you, Honda. The ratio really is 25 to 1, I know, I've counted. Last Sunday was that one, and it was a blessed and glorious day of the Lord. For as we trekked up I-35 to make our way here, the sensor finally went off for her. And I danced with joy before the Lord and might have had some corrective words to share. <laughs> Uh, I was hyped about the beautiful van exchange. However, I did not realize that as a result of the beautiful van exchange, there would be driving behavior change needed on my part. You see, I thought we'd just make the van exchange and it would all be good and we'd go on with life as we knew it. But what I did not know was that life as I knew it was over because the new van required an alteration of my behavior. And as I do with a lot of life, it started 
my thought process turning about walking with Jesus and about this series that we've been involved in called The Beautiful Exchange. (laughs) I'm reminded of the why behind our van exchange and why my driving needs to change. And that is because when I'm behind the wheel, I'm responsible for some other people. I'm not only responsible for myself, but there's usually six other people in the car that are depending upon my abilities as a driver. And that's when I thought, if my behavior needs to change as a result of this new van, what does that mean for my walk with the Lord? Yeah, it's kind of weird stuff that goes through my mind. And then it hit me. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are calling us into a relational journey of love. In turn, we are sent to demonstrate this love as we go. In other words, when we participate, join up with, receive, commit to, and embrace the beautiful exchange of our old self for our new self and our new life with Jesus in the kingdom of God, we do so as Holy Spirit-empowered little Jesuses for the sake of others. Just as the beautiful van exchange is reshaping my driving habits for the sake of my family, the beautiful life in Jesus exchange is reshaping us for the sake of anyone yet to share in the exchange. While the reshaping process continues, we are sent to demonstrate his love as we go. We sing the song to the Lord, no doubt, but we also sing it as a proclamation and a reminder to each other. I will build my life upon his love. It is a firm foundation and I will put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken. Why do we sing that? Why do we commit to build our lives on his love, because his ongoing, his unending, his all-welcoming love is what he's called us to share with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our friends, and with others. So as we commit to build our lives on his love, we must always remember that we're doing so for the sake of others. I and or we build our lives upon his love so that we can demonstrate his love with our lives. Now this begs another question. What does this life of love demonstrated actually look like? What does building our lives on his love so that we can share his love with other people, if we're living that out, what does that look like? And this is where you would expect the preacher to give you some to-dos. This is where when we talk about a life of love demonstrated, you would expect the preacher to say things like, you go and do loving things. For example, you initiate spiritual conversations with coworkers over coffee. You purposely get to know your neighbors and have them over to show hospitality and to show kingdom life by sharing your home with them. You gather your life group together and go hand out iced water bottles on Lancaster Avenue to show love to people without homes. You go and do things to demonstrate the life and love of Jesus. 
And I'm here to tell you that all of those things are fantastic ideas and all of those things are needed and all of those things are demonstrations of life and love in Jesus. It's just not where I'm going this morning. For so much of my life, I was about those things with a good heart, with good intentions. And at the end of the day, it just burned me out. I was about living that life of love in the neighborhood and planning weeks and months in advance for neighborhood gatherings. I was about sacrificing for the sake of others and having folks in our home every night of the week and trying to do Bible studies and trying to serve the local elementary school and all of those good things. But because I missed something very, very important at the end of the day, I was just tired. I'd done a lot for the kingdom of God, but I, I wasn't sure if I knew God. That's really where I was. So hear me. All of those ideas are fantastic, and you should indeed do them. However, this morning, here is our focus in terms of the question, what does this life look like? I'm here to tell you that this life looks like an undistractable identity in Jesus. That's where we're going. This life of demonstrated love looks like an undistractable identity in Jesus. We're going to look at two sections of Scripture today. One is Matthew 3, and the other is Acts 2. Okay, Matthew 3, we're going to be in 13 to 17. Acts 2, we're probably going to bounce around just a little bit. So come with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Father, we turn our hearts to you, and we continue to ask that you would speak to us from your word, that your Holy Spirit would stir in our midst and would continue to pursue us with your undistractable identity in Jesus. Thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for being our God. There is no one like you. And we continue to seek you for the sake of others. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, we find Jesus, water, spirit, and voice. Remember the last time those four got together? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. I wonder if part of what Matthew is attempting to say at the end of chapter 3 takes his initial audience back to the well-worn and frayed pages of Genesis. Israel, formless, empty, and dark like earth was at the time. And yet, something is stirring. Something is building. Something is coming. Or should I say someone is here announcing that the old has gone and the new has come. Jesus, full of grace and truth, is back, back from the future. I'll explain that some other time. 
Let's walk through three important scenes for this Matthew chapter three passage. First, at Jesus's insistence, John relents and agrees to baptize him. In Jewish rabbinical culture, rabbis received blessing or authority from two sources. By participating in his baptism, John serves as one source in this story. However, who else pronounces authority over Jesus? According to Ray Vanderlaan, this passage confirms Jesus as the only Jewish rabbi in history to receive authority directly from God. Oftentimes, the religious leaders would ask Jesus where was his authority to teach or to heal or to midrash the scriptures as he does. His authority came from John and from God himself. Second, as Jesus emerges from the watery grave, spirit lands on him. Echoes of Genesis 1? I think so. Heaven is ripped open and spirits hovering over the waters, and in this case, choosing to land upon and fill Jesus. As N.T. Wright states, Jesus is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. Jesus, filled with the Spirit, is the new temple, the collision of heaven and earth for the sake of the world. Third, the voice. No, no, not Adam and Gwen and Blake and Alicia and sometimes Ursher and all. No, the real voice. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Wow. I just imagine this scene playing out in my mind, something like this. Hey, baptize me. No way. (laughs) Not going to do it. You baptize me. I said baptize me. Okay, fine. Into the water, out of the water, heavens open, spirits descending, falling upon him, and then the voice. The voice pronounces blessing, peace, and shalom. First, you are my son. Second, I love you. Third, I am well pleased with you. Why does the voice say these things about Jesus? I mean, He's Jesus would be a great answer, but just not full enough. Up to this point, he hasn't healed anyone. No amazing crowd stunning sermons. No passing the bread basket to 5,000 people. No mud in the blind man's eyes. No clearing the temple. No saving and freeing. No making disciples. No missional living. No cross. No resurrection. And yet, and yet the voice thunders. You are mine. I love you. You please me greatly. Jesus has nothing to boast about, nothing to prove himself with, and nothing to point to in the hopes of appeasing the voice he can only receive. When I was preparing for this message, I imagined myself looking in the mirror and speaking to myself, because oftentimes this is where I find myself, so I'll say it again. Jesus has nothing to boast about, nothing to prove himself with, and nothing to point to in hopes of appeasing the voice. He can only receive. He can only receive the blessing of an undistractable identity that the voice is so eager and excited to give. Do you hear the voice? I think he's talking to and about us too. You are mine. I love you. With you, I am greatly pleased. Performance, productivity, and perception, they don't define our identity. 
ultimately the voice that spoke the universe into existence and announced blessing and identity over the Son speaks the same words over and about us. Again, you are mine, I love you, and you please me greatly. Kind of reminded me of Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going next. I mean, in Acts 2, you've got Jesus' disciples, right? And we kind of remember how the Gospels ended. Scared, nervous, running off, forsaking, can't, can't stand the heat, like I'm out of here. This wasn't what we thought it was. He wasn't who we thought He was. But then at the end of Acts chapter 2, we find this description. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. How in the world did that happen? I mean, one minute you're shaking in your boots, and the next minute you are living the life that we look to and so desire to emulate. I mean, one minute you're running off into the wherever they ran off to, trying to get away from all of the religious authorities, and the next minute you are living it up, modeling and going for it with each other for the sake of the kingdom. What in the world is going on here? And I'm drawn back to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that occurs earlier in the chapter. Their identity was sealed when the tongues of fire and the Spirit poured out upon them. It was as if they went from nervous to bold right there in the chapter. They were shaken and uncertain and hiding, and now they're out in the open letting it all go for the sake of the kingdom and the betterment of the people. With the sealing and filling of the Holy Spirit, they are bold and confident and moving forward. It's as if that Holy Spirit moment defines their identity, reminds them of who they walked with, of who they're becoming like, and of who is empowering them to go out and do it. And they went out and did it. They changed the entire world. But hear me, it wasn't the stuff that they did as much as it was whose they were and who filled them and empowered them to go do that stuff. That was the mistakes that I made earlier in life. We were about to go do it, but I wasn't patient and restful enough to receive it first. So in Matthew 3, we've got Father, Son, and Spirit all there in that passage. And we've got Jesus receiving that identity from the Father, from the voice that thunders. I love you. You're mine. I'm pleased with you. And in Acts chapter 2, we have the Holy Spirit falling and filling so that they go out proclaiming and living from the identity they've received. Are you with me? Okay. But Chris, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. 
You don't know how broken I am. You don't know how incomplete I am. You don't know how burned out I am. Yeah, me too. However, the question that the Lord continues to ask me is, is my love not good enough for you? What if God is actually on our side? What if God is actually for us? What if God isn't scarce with his love? What if instead God is abundant with his love? What if God's loving identity and words of blessing are actually our starting points with him and not some type of plateau or mountaintop that we reach with him? What if that's where it all begins with God? I love you. You're mine. I'm pleased with you. Could it really be true? Because that sounds like good news to me. That sounds like good news that we need to hear, and that sounds like good news that the city needs to hear, and that sounds like good news that the nations need to hear, that God is for us and that his inclination, his posture towards us is one of spirit-empowered love. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are calling us into a relational journey of love. In turn, we are sent to demonstrate this love as we go. Because the Father has freely given us an undistractable identity in Jesus, we are free to walk in obedience through ongoing fillings of the Holy Spirit. I kind of envision it like a triangle, and you've got the triangle here, and you've got Father at the top, you've got identity here, and you've got obedience here. And so the progression goes Father to identity, Father to identity. You are my son, you are my daughter, you are my beloved one, I love you. With you, I'm well pleased from father to identity. And that frees us because we are secure in who we are as followers of God. That secures us to go and do the works of the kingdom. It makes sense for us to be people of love, to be people of hospitality, to be people of hope, to be people of goodness, to be people of generosity, to be people of sharing and caring, to be people of prophecy, to be people of healing, to be all of those things. It makes sense for that to occur, for us to live that way, because all we're doing is living out our identity. All we're doing is being true to who God has made us to be. Are you with me? We're heating up just a little bit. From Father to um, identity to obedience, it makes sense for us to live that way because that's who we were created to be. I oftentimes get off track when I go Father, obedience, identity. Because that's when I start to say things, especially when I was involved in, in church planting, I would start to say things like, well, we only had such and such on Sunday morning. What am I doing wrong? Well, we had, holy cow, had to pull out the extra chairs Sunday. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Pretty cool, isn't it? And I would get off track when my identity was found in what was happening, what the results were or were not. And that's when it got pretty tough because there were times when the results were what I wanted and there were times when they weren't. And I wasn't rooted in that identity and allowed myself to get off track. So when we go father, obedience, identity, we tend to set ourselves up to earn an identity and a standing with the Lord that he's already given us. And that gets us on that hamster wheel. So let's go father, identity, obedience, because it's just true to who we are. The results are the Holy Spirit's anyway. I mean, we see the results there at the end of Acts 2, directly coming from the falling and the filling of the Spirit. And so regardless of what the results are, we continue to turn to the Lord to remind us of who we are. 
Because the Father has freely given us an undistractable identity in Jesus, we are free to walk in obedience through ongoing fillings of the Holy Spirit. We need the forward collision warning sensors to go off every now and again, but this is our destiny. This is whom we are created to be. Our identity does not change and it is not tied to ministry ideas and outcomes. Indeed, because our identity begins and ends with God, we are free to risk it all in pursuit of the King and the proclamation of His kingdom. Come on now. Will you stand with me? I'm like standing up here by myself. I'm like, ah, stand up. Um, This demands a response. I mean, if this really is the good news of God, that our identity is in Him, and that because of that, we are free to risk it all for the sake of the King and the proclamation of His kingdom, this demands, um, demands a response. The voice thunders. You are mine. I love you. You please me greatly. For some, this response time is to receive the undistractable identity for yourself. And thank you, worship team and ministry team. If you haven't come forward, please do. Um, For some, it's time to receive the undistractable identity for yourself. For some, it's time to receive the undistractable identity as you're pleading for another. For some, it's time to receive the undistractable identity as you're pleading for a group of people. Um, for example, as you plead for another, you may be walking with a friend who doesn't follow Jesus and you're modeling and demonstrating that life of love and you want nothing more than to welcome um, that person into the kingdom of God. And so you may respond during this prayer time asking that the Lord um, would bring that about. In terms of a group, like we, we do Little League Baseball and that's, that's always kind of a weird conversation uh, because it is quite a time commitment. But we've committed to it because we're trying to be salt and light um, in that community of people. And so we've gotten amazing opportunities to walk with folks through dark times. Um, I, I had the, the great opportunity to, um, to lead a funeral um, for a baseball family that was a very, very tender time. And the Lord has really brought us great kingdom opportunities through that. So maybe you are, um, you're pleading before the Lord for a group of people. Maybe you're just here and you're, you're saying, you know, I just got, I got issues in life and I need help. I need prayer. Whatever it is, that's what this time's about. It's about receiving that undistractable identity from Jesus. Regardless, the voice invites you into his throne room. Now you may be wondering, I, I'm with you, Chris, on this identity stuff, but why do you keep referring to it as an undistractable identity in Jesus? It sounds kind of weird. And to be honest, I'm distracted all the time. Um, I want to spend time with him. I, I want to be with him daily in the morning or whenever, but I'm quite distracted a lot. I'm here to tell you, me too. And the challenge here is that the undistractableness, if that's even a word, in regards to the identity of Jesus, it's not us. The undistractable part is him. His pursuit of you. His desire to welcome you into his arms. His four Longing to be with you is undistractable. He cannot be swayed. He cannot be turned to the side or distracted when it comes to proclaiming His love and worth and goodness and hope before you. You are His son. You are His daughter. He loves you. And with you, He is well pleased. 
That's what undistractable identity in Jesus is all about. There are all kinds of amazing things to do in the kingdom of God, but together let's receive Jesus' identity to live out the beautiful exchange in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray, and as I do, please come and receive prayer from these trusted friends here as together we seek the Lord. We glorify You, God. There is no one like You. King of kings, Lord of lords, we thank You that Your posture towards us is one of love. It's one of grace. It's one of embrace. That, God, You just desire us to come into Your courts. You welcome us into Your throne room. You welcome us into life with You. And so I just pray that over my friends here this morning. That during this time, Father, You would pour out Your undistractable identity in Jesus and fill us with Your Holy Spirit to go and be about the works of Your kingdom. So have Your way in us, O God, during this time. In Jesus' name, Amen.